And as we come to chapter 20, we now come to the latter end of the wilderness wandering. In the narrative, the historical record of Numbers, you go pretty quickly from the beginning of the journey and the rejection of God's promises at Kadesh Barina, back there, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, to now all of a sudden at chapter 20, we're in the last few years of the wilderness wandering. There wasn't a lot that went on there in that middle period to talk about other than the rebellion of Korah. And so after getting the review of the laws of purification through the ashes of the red heifer, which was pretty interesting actually for us to study that on Tuesday, we come to chapter 20 and my Bible has titles over things and it says Moses' heir at Kadesh. And it's a very famous story of Moses and an error he made on the latter part of his life, the last few years of his life, with striking the rock. And many of you are familiar with this story, but if you're not, we'll certainly will be after tonight. So as we come into chapter 20, we're just in the last few years of that 40-year wilderness wandering, close to the finish line. Most of the people over 20 that were rejected by the Lord have died in the wilderness. There's a future generation that has grown up in the wilderness, everyone under 20, and there's people being born. And we talked about the two parallel lines of the wheat and the tare at the same time, like Jesus said in the church, people that are going to enter in through faith and people that are dying because of their unbelief. And that journey's almost done, and they're on the cusp of the promised land and just a few years away from entering in under the leadership of Joshua. So as we come into that timeline, we read this in verse 1. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I am giving to them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Now, after this text, Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, refused to let Israel go through their land for passage, moving toward the promised land of modern Israel from the right side of the Jordan River, coming up the back way of the Sinai. And so that was difficult. And then right after that, the Lord says it's time for Aaron to die, and he calls Moses and Aaron to go up a mountain. And because Aaron's a high priest, again, that's Moses' older brother, they go up the mountain, and the Lord tells Moses to strip the high priest's garments off of Aaron and to put them on his son Eliezer, so that would be Moses' nephew. And they do that, and so we read at the end of this chapter that thus Aaron died, 
and Moses came down the mountain with Eleazar, the new high priest, son of Aaron, and they were again gathered together at the bottom of the mountain. This chapter has a lot of death in it. And it's worth noting, because I think context is very important in this story of understanding Moses, what's going on. Moses lives 120 years total time, and he's in the back three years of his life. He's in the very end. He's in independent living, maybe assisted living. Not memory care, because he's functioning at full capacity with the Lord. But he's at the very, very end, essentially, of his journey. Proportionally, percentage-wise, of the overall time of his life, he's on the very back end. And we've been thinking a lot about this and talking a lot about this, even with this year and the COVID restrictions and how it's affected the elderly who are in care, whether it's memory care or assisted living, independent living. It's been very difficult. And we know from the human experience, and if you study the Bible well, you know that, especially with the kings, almost 40 of them in the history of Israel and the northern kingdom in Judah, we tend to get worse as we get older, not better. That's the record of the kings. Like the great kings did great things when they're younger, but almost all of them do foolish things to get older. And it's easy for us to unravel and be less spiritual and more carnal on the back end of our life than otherwise. All you have to do to be carnal and implode on yourself is to not grow in the Lord. If you just wake up and exist, you'll go toward the rut of son of Adam, daughter of Eve, be selfish, and who you are and what you are will be revealed down the stretch. And you can't change that. It's too late to change it. That's why I keep saying now is the time to grow, to humble, to abase ourselves so we don't make our worst decisions and have our worst moments in the last three years like Moses did right here. And so it's really important to just even consider what happened with Moses overall on this topic and the deaths around him. The end of the journey can be very difficult, and I'm realizing that right now with my life, having buried my mom just less than a year ago, December 29th, she died before my eyes. Having brought my father-in-law up here for assisted living in February, my dad up here for assisted living in March, my father-in-law dying in August, and today bringing my dad home to live with us on December 12th, the end of the COVID, like, we're done. We're done with that whole stuff, and dad's come home, and so we appreciate your prayers as he calibrates, like, you know, being in the living room, and I gotta tell you this classic story. He's watching Wisconsin football today. My dad grew up in Madison, and he grew up a Badger. He graduated from UW. Wisconsin. And so he's on our couch with all the Christmas decorations, his Christmas stocking. He's super happy. He knows our house. And we just got this thing where he could watch the TV and all this. And so he's watching the, and it started to do snow flurries. And he fell asleep on the couch. And I took a nap and he took a nap because we're, we're all taking naps at 60, right? So, but I wake up, I come out and the, the light flurries turned to full on major snowstorm at the Wisconsin game against Iowa. My dad's like, He's like, yeah, Joe, I, I fell asleep and it was flurries and I woke up, it was a blizzard. And I was like, where am I? <laughs> Pop, you're in our house. That's my room down there. That's your room on the left. Your room's on the left. The bathroom's on the right. Okay. <laughs> Do you need help? And I praise the Lord for what he's been teaching me the last four years with the elderly and taking care of our parents and even being prepared for myself moving toward that. We put in the shower handlebars, you know, uh, for the walk-in shower and outside the door. And I thought, you know, this is a good investment because I can see how this is just going to, you know, this is not just a one and done kind of thing. This, this works for the long haul. But in that context of my own life and just, you know, we got to laugh at ourselves and we have to enjoy the journey. We have to really get the context of Moses here. His sister died. 
That's, I think verse one is very important in this chapter. Before he has his worst moment, he has the emotion of losing his older sister. I have a younger sister and an older brother. Some of you have adult siblings. Some of you have buried loved ones that are siblings. We know that. And you know, the relationships, no matter what they are when they're younger, when you're growing up with your siblings, they get different as you get older. And we know that. And the older you get, like when you're all in your 30s or all in your 40s or all in your 50s, it just kind of, it can be good, bad, and ugly. But Miriam was a prophetess and Aaron was a high priest and Moses was the lawgiver. This was their family. So this chapter starts with his sister dying and we don't read anything other than just that she passed. So we think of the grief that Moses would have felt. His parents are long gone. Who knows about his first wife or even his second wife at this point? There's no details. What my dad pointed out to me a couple of years ago is, Joe, when you reach 90, you outlive most of your peer group. So your generation's gone, and what you know is the younger generation behind you, but almost everyone you grew up with is gone. And my dad's last good friend was Joe, uh, Bob Tremel, who uh, was at Iwo Jima. He was a veteran of Iwo Jima, major combat veteran from Iwo Jima, World War II veteran. They always celebrated Marine Corps birthday together, and then Veterans Day right after that. Bob Tremel died in the spring of this year. I had to tell my dad that. That was my last friend, that my, the last friend that my dad really had. All the cousins are gone, all the aunts are gone, and now he's home with us, and Zippy and Belzy, the great grandkids, were there tonight, and you know, it's, it's good. But when you lose the closest people to you that you love, and they step into eternity, that's going to affect you. We're not designed for death. So I just, the context of Moses here burying Miriam is, we can't miss that. Oh, like, oh yeah, Miriam died. no. Miriam, his sister, died, who followed him when he was in the, the basket going down the Nile River, that Miriam, who spoke to Pharaoh's daughter, that Moses' mom could nurse him. Like, this is Miriam. This is his older sister, and they had a century of a relationship. That Miriam. And then the last part of the chapter is Aaron dies. The Lord says Aaron's going to die. So we don't know the details of Miriam's death, but Aaron's death, it's like a terminal illness. Like, hey, you're going to die in a month, so put your house in order. That's what happened with Aaron. When God says to you, and he's been speaking to Aaron and Moses personally, Aaron's time has come because he's the high priest and you just got to know the future, you're going. So the bookends of the chapter is his sister dies and then his brother dies. That's important. He's rejected by Edom, the descendants of the distant relative of Uncle Esau. And here in the middle of this tapestry of events, this panoramic of events, we have on display what wouldn't seem to be Moses' worst moment. But because of what happened, it becomes his worst moment in what it was meant to show and what it did show contrary to that. So this is a very important story for us, but I just frame it with grief because even the people who contend with Moses said, we should have died here and we should have died there and now we're all going to die and our animals are going to die because of you. See, it's all death. It would do the United States of America really good if every person woke up tomorrow that's an American citizen and said, I'm going to die and look at their life through the optic that this is temporal and take a deep breath and realize we are all moving toward eternity. Now, most of us here think about eternity. Most of us here are excited about eternity. This is a chapter with a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of dying in it and fear of dying. We should have died here and we, now we're going to die there. It's just, it's one of those chapters. 
In this chapter, we have a testing, a great testing. It is a time of testing for the people, the younger people who are now older but have the chance to enter in. It's a time of testing for Moses and Aaron. That becomes clear through what happened in the text as we read it. It's a time of testing. In 1 Corinthians, we get additional interpretation of this text that really helps us from the Holy Spirit. We are told in 1 Corinthians that the rock represents Christ. Now, at the beginning of their journey, they didn't have water when they came out of Egypt. And if you'll recall, God said to strike the rock and the water came forth. So they murmured against the Lord then at the beginning of the journey and God struck the rock through Moses and water came forth and met their needs. So they had a historical example. Now, God is faithful whether you have the example or not. He's true to his character, like the songs we're singing tonight. But they themselves had an example in this journey of the rock bringing forth water. So whenever you come anywhere in the journey for the rest of the journey, you can say, we don't have water. Well, how are we going to get the water? Well, remember when God, when Moses struck the rock, we got water. Like God's able to meet our needs. He's given us manna every day and he can give us water from a rock. That's what they should have known. So in other words, to trust in the Lord in this time of testing, all they had to do was reference his faithfulness in the past. The testing of the present for the purpose of the future for passing would just be based upon trusting in him from his faithfulness in the past. That's all they had to do. But they didn't do it. So 1 Corinthians tells us that that rock is Christ. And Jesus, we know there in the Gospel of John, said, come to me at that feast, come to me, and for the person that comes to me from, their, from them will overflow rivers of torrents of living water. And this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. So there's definitely a symbolism with Christ being the rock and the water, the Holy Spirit, because the New Testament gives us that interpretation. So in the Old Testament here, in this water, and there's the physical reality, this rock, inanimate matter, is going to bring forth water. And since the rock represents Christ, and since Jesus said that torrents of living water coming from him represents the Holy Spirit, that torrents of living water has a spiritual element to it representing the Holy Spirit. That's a, a strong, safe interpretation of Scripture interpreting Scripture. Thus, Moses was told to speak to the rock, not strike the rock, which we'll get to in just a moment. So it's a time of testing. It's a time of emotional vulnerability. Also, in this passage, we saw clear instruction. We see actions and consequences. Divine instruction, human actions, and consequences. More for Moses and Aaron than even the people who were rebels. It is ironic, too, because... In this chapter, we had the whole chapter like Tuesday night. Moses calls the people rebels. You rebels. And maybe he's grieving over his sister. We don't know. But to whom much is given, much is required. And there's a higher standard for Moses because he's representing the Lord in the gospel right here. And he calls them rebels. And it's interesting because later on in the chapter, when God says you're not going to the promised land, he says, because you rebelled against my word. So an irony of this context is Moses accused them of being rebels when in the very moment he accused them of being rebels, God would say later on, you were rebelling against me and my word. And isn't that a whole other study that so often what we accuse other people of, we can be guilty of most? It's been said we most recognize our sins in other people. And it's, a, it's an interesting detail to the story that Moses calls them rebels and is so frustrated with them. And then God says, but you rebelled against me at that very moment. Which just reminds us we need to be very careful 
<laughs> what we're saying and who we're directing it toward and the spirit by which we direct it. We need to let God be God and we need to be who we need to be, which is the main thrust of where we're going with the message tonight. It's a time of testing. I draw your attention to verse two. There was no water. There was no water. No water will test you, won't it? No water will test you. When your basic needs seem like they're not being met by the Lord, that will test you. But really, since most of us have our basic needs met by the Lord, and even the homeless in Southern California tend to live much better than a lot of people who have huts in other parts of the world, what really tests us, I believe, as believers in Southern California or believers in America, it's a testing of what we lack, what's missing. And what we most have a hard time with from the Lord is when we have something and then we lose it. In other words, we had water, we don't have water. We had a house, we don't have a house. We had a job, we don't have a job. I had a scholarship, I don't have a scholarship. This person and I were together, we're not together. This person I love is gone and they won't be with us for the holidays. They're in eternity. I have found in the human experience, especially as a pastor, how we handle loss of what is not there for us that maybe previously was or what we would like to be there for us that God's never given us reveals a lot about us. And it's a test. This is a test for the people. But it's a test for Moses and Aaron as well. There was no water. 2020 has been a year of loss for a lot of people. Even recently, we've heard of another congregant in the church who's lost their job. People have lost their income. People have lost the fullness of their income. In all the craziness and the diversity of various government-imposed regulations, there has been tremendous loss for a lot of people. I, I read that over 100,000 small businesses have gone out of business in 2020. We have no idea what this is going to affect us and look like for our economy in 2021. We just have no idea. It's like we're still in a hurricane, and if you've ever been in a hurricane, and I have a couple of them, we're still in the hurricane. We haven't walked outside yet. You don't really know how extensive the damage of a hurricane is until it's all gone and you go outside and you say, well, the bridge is gone, the roofs are gone, this is gone. Like, we don't even know. And as much as we've gained a lot spiritually, clarity, purpose, vision, simplicity, I hope we've gained those things, a closer walk with the Lord, we'll get to that in a moment. 2020 has been a year of loss. It's been a loss of freedoms. It's been a loss of common sense. It's been a loss of the marketplace of thought and competing ideas where you can actually just talk about different ideas and compare ideas. Because there's only two ways to govern, right? Two ways to govern. Good ideas that the majority uh, agree with and they let them govern them or govern by force. This is human history. Good ideas are governed by force. And we've lost that place where we can govern with good ideas and the market. We've lost the marketplace of thought. We've lost reason. Good has become evil, and evil has become good. And we've watched it happen before our eyes. It happened gradually for the, since 2000, and even before then. Remember in the 80s, I don't believe the liberal media, bumper sticker? <laughs> How old school. I don't believe the liberal media bumper sticker, 1988. That is so old school. Because if you say anything that the globalists don't agree with, you're censored and you're shut down. There's a loss of freedom of speech. There's been a, a, a massive attempt for a loss of freedom of religion in this country in the name of COVID restrictions. 
Fortunately, the courts are standing for the churches and other houses of worship, if you will. But it's been a year of loss. We have, we have had a lot of emotion watching loss of common sense, loss of critical thinking, loss of income, loss of ideas, loss of equal access to even compare ideas in a college campus, loss of truth. It's been a hard year for all of us. And again, for some of us, it's reduced to like the owner of Slapfish restaurants just saying, you know what? I tried. I invested all this money to buy these outdoor things. And you know what? We just got to do what we got to do. We got to stay open. We got to stay open. I don't know if you saw the video went like it's getting millions of views. He, it was, he basically said, this is insanity. It's madness. And we're watching this. So I think contextually we can all relate to like there's no water. So whatever you think that used to be there that you had or what you want that should be there is not there, just say, there's no water. It gives us context. We're in the wilderness right now, and there's no water. How are we going to pay our bills? There's no government checks. Check looked good in April. I haven't seen any checks since. They all do. Everyone's, where's the government relief? We had a prayer request to go out this week for our congregation that if the state, you know, if this, these people in their businesses in Los Angeles County don't get a, tens of thousands of dollars of a grant from the government, they're, they're out of business within a month. There's no water. And the Lord has definitely tested all of us on the planet. He's tested us as American citizens, and he still is testing us. And he's testing his church. Now, our job isn't to pass the test for the United States of America and government. Our job is to pass the test for the person we see in the mirror and the people we love closest to us and as a church congregation. That's what we want to do. We want to pass the test. There's no water. And it affects us daily when we think about the impact of all that's gone on and where it's taking us. But it's a test. No water is a test. So when we think about this, as we come to the end of 2020, have we shifted from frustration to faith? Have we shifted from fear to faith? Are we confident for our future because of God's faithfulness in the past to our personal lives and to this church and to humanity? Or are we murmuring in the present because of the loss and that there's no water? Is the no water in our lives right now on December 12th bringing out our worst or is it bringing out our best? When there's a testing and there's things missing that have been taken, that will reveal what's in us. And I speak for myself. I could just be talking in the mirror right now to Pastor Joey. So just know I'm with all of you on this one. I should be on my knees teaching this study before you, not in this pulpit above you. I know this. I, we've all been through this. I watch all these wonderful Calvary pastors navigate this last year, the ones that have social media, and you watch them go up and down. You watch them express frustration and exasperation just like you have felt in your own lives as no, you can't meet indoors. No, you can't even meet outside. No, 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 no water, no water, no water, no water, no water. Go home and quit. Roll over and die. I've watched people that I've respected in ministry for 33 years since I got the Harvest Book and went to all these churches to visit these great men. And I've watched them. And I watched him have to grow before our eyes, even as you've had to watch me grow before your eyes, and I've had to watch you grow before your eyes. 
But we need to make sure when there's no water, it doesn't bring us to the place where we're contending against the Lord or that we're blaming the Lord or blaming spiritual leaders. I haven't really felt too many people blame me for anything around here. So thank you for that. <laughs> that means I've taught you properly. You're not looking unto Joey, the author and finisher of your faith. You're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. They gathered against Moses and Aaron. But really, it says there in verse 2 that the people gathered together and they contended with Moses. But verse 13, it says, they, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord. So they weren't really contending with Moses and Aaron. They're just visible representatives of the Lord. They're really contending against the Lord. We don't want to end this year contending against God because there's no water. There's a lack of something in our life practically of necessity that we maybe had before. And I've said this verse a few times throughout this year from the book of Jeremiah, where God said, if you can't run with the foot soldiers, how are you going to run with the horsemen? And we just got to go deeper, stronger, better. We just, we got we to gotta keep finding another gear. You'd like to find another gear and catch your breath and say, let's just hold this gear for a while. But I get the feeling we're in like, find another gear, and then next month got to find another gear. We've got to keep finding another gear. That's what we have to do. We, we have to pass these tests in our personal lives with our marriages, if we're married, with our homes, with our children, our grandchildren, with our churches, with our communities. We have to just, there's no water. And we can't murmur against the Lord. And we can't contend against the Lord. We have to trust and remember that God has been faithful in the past. And the optic of uncertainty in the future, we need to just when we see a loss of things, we just have to know that we're moving toward eternity. They can't take what you've already given. The main thing is when you lose things that people take, whether it's government or evil people, or they're one and the same, is that you know who you believed in and you know the standards of the word of God that guide and govern your heart. So when you come to those difficult decisions that are so far reaching for your life legacy and how they impact your life and others that you can say with Paul, I know who I believed in and I'm convinced he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until this day. And he also said to the Ephesian elders that none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to me that I can finish the race and fulfill the ministry he has set before me. When he had the uncertain future going toward Jerusalem revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Now, the second thing we see here with no water, which is the flashpoint, is they fell on their faces. That's pretty good to do when you're being tested and there's no water because you can contend against the Lord or you can fall on your faces. So we see here in verse 6, it says, So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Falling on our faces. We saw during the conflict with Korah a couple weeks ago on the verse by verse Tuesday night that Moses fell on his face as soon as there was conflict with Korah. And he tried to reason with Korah. Korah would receive none of it. In fact, Korah was just so demented in how he responded to Moses. And then Moses fell on his face before the Lord with Aaron. And then when God struck down the 280 plus with the censers, then God had the plague the next day where 14,000 plus, and Moses fell on his face again. Three times in that chapter, Moses fell on his face. So I'm going to suggest to all of us that Moses had a pattern, that when life just completely overwhelmed him in his calling, he just fell on his face. And isn't that a good thing? 
I think that's, I, I, I thought that before with the core incident, but as soon as there's a problem with things and he falls on his face, that's a really good thing. Because some people, when they have a problem with people, they go right after the people. And they don't exhale, and they, they, they got to write the email. And as my son-in-law, Nate Gallagher, would say, who sends that email, right? You know, you write, you write this email, like, sit on it. Then you come back a day later, you edit it. And then, like, a few days later, like, edit a little more. And then you get down to, like, four sentences, like, I don't even need to say it. Just forget it. You just, you learn. Now, obviously, Moses failed in this test. But they fell on their faces. I would suggest to all of us the best thing we can do right now is make it a habit to fall on our faces when there's no water. And people are blaming us because there's no water. Or people are explaining to us that it's dangerous to have water. So you better not have water unless they give you the water. And they'll tell you how you get your water, when you get your water, and where you get your water. I think it's just really important that we can't ignore that text where it says they fell on their faces. They're overwhelmed yet again. 37 years of dealing with this stuff in the wilderness. They're at it again. Fall on your face before the Lord. That's what we have to do. Again, if 2020 teaches us anything, it's to fall on our face before the Lord. School is open. School's not open. School is kind of open. It's kind of not. Mask, shield, shield, mask, both. Like, what, like, what do you know? Today when I get, went to get my dad, I had my mask. Like, that mask is not the kind of mask you got to have. Come on. <laughs> All right. Fortunately, they had the mask I needed. You need this mask. All right. Okay. I see how it is around here. January 1st, we even thought of a mask. They fell on their faces we, we, we can't have contention over these things. Stay in the moment and fall on our faces. What does fall on our faces really represent? It represents brokenness and humility. But not, not so much like for the benefit of humanity, although it does benefit humanity, for your benefit. If people are coming against you and blaming you for things that God's doing or not doing, there's no water, it's your fault and you serve the Lord, and you fall on your face, that's a good chain reaction of events. That's a good habit to have. It's, it's one we want to have. Like, we don't want to... Falling on our face represents humility. It represents brokenness. It represents good things. Because God resists the proud, but he always gives grace to the humble. And as people are melting down and the woke mob and cancel culture is canceling and shouting down people and censoring people, you know what? If you're on your face, they, they, you can never cancel that. You're already broke, so you can't be woke. How can cancel culture cancel you when you're on your face before the Lord? At the tabernacle. God resists the proud. He'll deal with cancel culture. Oh, he'll deal with them. For every idle word, every idle thought, its intents, its motives. He'll deal with that. That's not our situation. Our situation is brokenness before the Lord. Woke can't broke what's already broke. When you're broken on your face before the Lord, there's not a, yelling, a lot of yelling and screaming going on or self-defense. It's just crying out for mercy, guidance, wisdom, protection from the Lord. It's casting your cares upon the Lord. And notice what happened. 
What happened? Just look at that verse again. What happened when they fell on their faces? What say after that? The glory of the Lord appeared to them. You don't find the glory of the Lord at the top of the mountain. You find the glory of the Lord in the deepest valley. When you take care of someone dying, that's when you see the glory of the Lord. When you're dying, that's when you see the glory of the Lord. When all you have is the Lord and his promises, that's when you see the glory of the Lord. I mean, when you are at the top of the mountain, you thank the good Lord. But when you're broken, you praise the Lord from the glory of the Lord. In my own experiences of life, and we're all in this together, because Jesus is a man of sorrows, we're told from Isaiah the prophet, that we most understand God's heart for humanity from sorrow in the valley. So when there's a, a tragedy and the loss of a loved one, those things break us. And in the, that brokenness, we, we see the Lord. We see the glory of the Lord. In the, in the darkest valleys, that's where the light shines brightest, and that's where we see the glory of the Lord. And we don't really ask for trials, and we don't ask for great testings. We don't ask for a lack of water, but when you come to the place of a lack of water, and there's all this contention, and there's brokenness, and in your face before the Lord, that's when you see the Lord. We prefer cruise control. We prefer safe and easy. But if anything's happened in 2020, safe and easy, except, well, a few people gotten much richer and much more powerful, but most of us feel less safe, and we definitely feel like life is less easy, which should put us on our face before the Lord. And if we see the glory of the Lord, that's a preview of coming attractions, right? That's a good thing about the glory of the Lord. If we see the glory of the Lord, if we really have those moments where we're in prayer and we're on our face and the, the room fills with the Holy Spirit and we just know he's talking to us and he's guiding our thoughts and putting visions on our heart, like that's all moving us toward eternity. That's not going to frustrate us with temporal. That's going to excite us and make us passionate for eternal. That's what the glory of the Lord does. The glory of the Lord doesn't leave us frustrated with time, space, and matter. The glory of the Lord elevates us for eternity and equips us to stand with that perspective for time, space, and matter. So we, like Paul, can say to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's what the glory of the Lord does. And they saw the glory of the Lord. I would hope and pray for all the uncertainties that our futures hold for each of us for different reasons, whether it's the total planet or as American citizens or just your family or you personally in the journey that God has in front of us. The wisest thing every believer can do is follow the example of all the believers of previous generations is to press into the Lord, fall on our faces and let him reveal himself to us in those difficult places because that's where we tend to hear his voice clearest. That's where we well, Paul said it best to the, in 2 Corinthians, the God of all comfort who comforts us in our despair that we can comfort others. Paul said he was perplexed beyond understanding, despondent of life itself. How many people felt like that in 2020? But he said, but the God of all comfort comforted us, and with that comfort, we're able to comfort others. So that deep, dark place where we fall on our face and we see the glory of the Lord allows us to minister to other people when they're in those same deep, dark places. Which really brings us to the third and final thing of this text is what was the purpose of speaking to the rock? Speaking to the rock was to reflect relationship. It was to reflect what already had happened, not 
it was to reflect what's happening because what's already happened, not what needs to happen. It says, you shall speak to the rock. And from that rock, water will come for the people and their animals. Now, what's interesting about Moses' misrepresentation here is, what did God do? He still gave the water. The people got the water. The animals got the water. But this picture of the gospel that the Father had in mind was incorrectly represented. And because it represented the gospel, the consequence was so far-reaching. You know, if you turn the ball over in a meaningless game, and I mean, this time, it doesn't mean anything, but you turn the ball over on the last play of the Super Bowl, ask Pete Carroll with the Seahawks against the Patriots. It's very meaningful. What you do and when you do it and what it represents with God in God's economy, there are majors and minors. There are different things that have far-reaching and nothing's more important than the gospel. That's why Paul, when he wrote the Galatians, he said, if any other angel or I come to you and preach a gospel other than the gospel, let them be accursed. And this is the gospel. Christ was crucified once for all. And when Moses struck the rock in Exodus, it represented the gospel. It represented God's plan of salvation. Strike the rock once, crucified. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. What does the book of Hebrews tell us in the New Testament? Christ died once for all, not to be re-crucified again and again and again. The world needs to understand, all humanity, every generation, every tongue, tribe, and nation needs to understand that Christ died once for all, all sufficiency through his death, burial, and resurrection. And it only happens once. All those previews from Abel's offering there in Genesis 4 to all, you know, Abraham's offering with Isaac, what it represented, all these things, the the Passover lambs, the, the, the red heifer from the previous chapter 19, it's all pointing toward Jesus. But once he died on the cross and said it is finished and rose from the grave, it's finished. Christ died once for all. He wants us to understand that He has paid the price, truly. It is finished. It is finished. We don't, we can't make it based upon us. It's based upon who he is and what he's done and that we stand in that positional righteousness. We live in that positional righteousness and we flow from that because it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure and we let him do the work he's doing in us because if we think he has to be crucified over and over again, that's what we do when it's Jesus plus my good works or Jesus plus my little weird religious things that I add on to the gospel. But the rock was struck once. So therefore, the great error of this seems like, wow, you don't get, you've lived 117 years and you don't get to go to the promised land because you smacked the rock twice? Like, what's up with that? Well, it's like a false gospel. That's what's up with that. Moses striking that rock misrepresented the gospel of grace. It represented that somehow Jesus dying once wasn't enough and you got to crucify him again and again. To whom much is given, much is required. And as the mediator of that covenant, it was supposed to be a beautiful typology like Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 of the father given his son. So too, this is a word picture. This is a, a typology for all humanity to have from black and white, if you will, the Old Testament a shadow of things to come, the fullness of Christ. And this was this beautiful thing that God was going to do. And all Moses had to do, like a believer who's been saved by faith and grace, is ask the Father. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? Seek, knock, and ask. It's about the Holy Spirit. So all you do is, when you have a relationship, you don't crucify Jesus. You speak to Jesus. And you ask for the Holy Spirit. 
And you ask to be filled. And you believe that you are filled because he fills us. It's a total misrepresentation of the gospel and the life of a believer. And that's why, like, maybe Moses and Aaron later that day, Aaron's like, man, dude, I can't believe it. Like, we're not, but don't feel too bad for Moses, right? Because where's Moses in the New Testament? He's in the promised land, in a glorified body, on the mountain of transfiguration. So it cost him something in time, but it didn't cost him anything in eternity. And that's kind of what happens with us too, right? Aren't there things that maybe we've done that bad decisions and the consequence it cost us something in time with the Lord? But the eternal blessings are still there. So when we think about Moses needs to speak to the rock, not strike the rock, it reminds us of just when you speak to the rock, Jesus. We need to hallow the rock. We need to trust the rock. And what's interesting about this, on this closing thought, on this third and final point, he says in verse 12, you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Wait, so you mean these rebels, which is what they are, right? Moses, these rebels, you rebels, whack, 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 hit the rock twice. God's like, you didn't hallow me. Let me translate that for you in the New Testament. You didn't keep your witness. You blew your witness. Lord, half these people aren't even going to the promised land. What's my witness matter? These people are rebels. They contend against you. What's it say in the next verse? It says the people contend against the Lord. These people were rebels. And they were contending against the Lord and contending against Moses and Aaron. But that doesn't release Moses and Aaron from misrepresenting the Lord in the gospel and speaking to the rock. Wow. Is this perhaps the most profound application of the text for all of us right now? What God is saying is like, don't let the wheels come off right now. Stay in your lane. Don't let the wheels come off. Look, I know it's all unraveling and it is the apocalypse. But just don't lose your witness now. Hallow me. Speak to the rock. Let the rebels see who falsely accuse you, who blame, let those who blame you for me being me, right? This is what we're saying here. Let those rebels who are blaming you, Moses and Aaron, when they're really blaming me. So how many people are attacking Christians around the world right now? How many people in America are attacking Christians, right? How many people are just loving to attack the church right now as government helps them do it? More box doors, more abortions, more bars open, all this stuff, whatever, but no churches open. A lot of people like that. Do you realize that? And you just want to go like, get your stick and crack the rock twice. Whack a whack like whack-a-mole. You know, you used to see it like, you know, Chuck E. Cheese, the whack-a-mole. Whack, whack, whack. Yeah, but you can't do that. It's like when Jackie Robinson played in the big leagues as the first African-American, Branch Rookie, the owner of the Dodgers, Brooklyn Dodgers, said, look, for two years, you can never, ever retaliate no matter what happens. And that man endured so much, he died young from what he went through those first two years where he couldn't retaliate. He just had to take it. All the abuse in every stadium, he just had to take it no matter what. He had to take it. For two years, he had to turn the other cheek and never say a word, no matter what they did to him. He had to keep his composure, and then the rest of the African Americans could come in and integrate Major League Baseball and eventually all the sports. Well, that's for time temporal and just for 
reasonable justice and equity for the human experience. Ours is for the kingdom of God. Ours is for the kingdom of God. That's incredible. What a legacy. But ours is even a higher legacy. It's a higher calling. So people that are rebels against God, who are blaming God for everything going on right now, and maybe blame us because of our association with God, you're saying we can't strike the rock twice? That's exactly what I'm saying. The integrity and the witness of the gospel must be maintained by those who represent it. We must hallow the Lord, speak to the rock, and speak the water out. Because God's faithful to his character. You notice he gave them grace. He gave the animals and the people water. He gave the rebels water because he's true to himself. And Moses and Aaron's misrepresentation did not cost the rebels from getting the water for themselves and their animals. It just costed Moses and Aaron. And in the end, us losing our witness or blowing our witness or unraveling right now, it will cost us. And you think, well, these people aren't going to get saved anyways. And maybe you think that because it's easy to think like that. In the end, it's not even really about whether or not they get saved or not. I mean, we want to have a heart that they get saved. What matters is that we're faithful and we maintain the witness till the end. Because Jesus said, I'm the light of the world and you're the light of the world. And I'm giving you my spirit and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And I've said this for so often. It doesn't, people believing or not believing doesn't negate the, the importance and the necessity of our witness being faithful and true to Jesus Christ. Speak to the rock. Hallow the rock. Trust God who brought water from the rock when the rock was struck, the gospel, but you have a relationship. Keep your composure. Speak to the rock. The water will come forth and whichever rebels are going to get saved, they're going to get saved. Whichever rebels are not going to get saved, they're not going to get saved, but either way, we're going to step into eternity and we need to fulfill our ministries and be faithful and true to the Lord who's called us and what he's doing in our life. Amen.